Church, will you join me just in saying thank you to our worship team as always. Thank you. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Well, uh, let me say good morning to everybody. Uh, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be back. Um, guests, if, you haven't had, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here at the Delaware campus, and we're grateful to have you with us uh, this morning. Guests, we always sort of give this instructions just to you that uh, as you're here with us this morning, we hope we get a chance to connect with you in person. Uh, if we don't, uh, you can go to just pull up a web browser, type in lpguest.com. Uh, Android users, we've heard there's some trouble with uh, some of these QR codes, but if you have an iPhone, the QR codes in front of you on the chairs, um, those will take you to lpguest.com as well. Just point your camera app at that QR code. It'll take you to lpguest.com. But maybe the easiest way is just to pull up a browser, type in lpguest.com, and you'll find there a bunch of helpful information about our church, our church calendar of events, uh, what's coming up in the life of our church. There's also a guest information card. If you wouldn't mind just taking a moment, filling that out sometime throughout our time together, uh, choose one of the ministries located there or listed there. Those are partner ministries of ours around central Ohio. And uh, we would love for you to choose one. We'll donate $5 in your honor. No strings attached, just our way of saying thanks so much uh, for being with us this morning. Uh, for the LifePoint family, a couple other things that I want to just run through. Uh, pack the Bus, uh, sort of an initiative we're part of right now. If you didn't notice, there's a large school bus parked right in front of our building. It's hard to miss, um, but I'm, I'm not the most observant person. So if you walk in this morning, you're like, is there really? Yes. Look on the way out, right? You'll see it there. So we're going to, I think we were originally thinking we'd just have it as a prop sort of for fun. I think next week we're actually going to like pack the bus with backpacks. So we're partnering with the United Way right now. Our goal is that no kid in our community uh, goes without a backpack this year as they head back to school. So we've committed to the United Way across our campuses, 2,000 backpacks. And so that means uh, several hundred of those, hundreds of those need to come from our campus. And so um, we, uh, LifePoint Kids is really driving this. So parents, you should have the information already. If you don't, and if you don't have a kiddo in LifePoint Kids, you want to participate in that, those cards are out at Guest Central. You can grab those. There's also a sign over there where it says to pack the bus. If you brought a backpack this morning, there's some black totes there. You can put those backpacks there. But the cards out at Guest Central will just say something like 15-inch backpack uh, for a boy or a girl, and it'll say age-wise as well. That way we don't give them 2,000 princess backpacks, right, for girls. We're trying to have that spread out, right, and, uh, and have guys, girls as well, and all ages represented as well. Uh, so please uh, partner with us as we partner with uh, the United Way, and let's provide, make sure no kid goes without a backpack uh, this year. That'll be next week where we collect all of those. You can bring them here through the week, but bring them next Sunday as well, and we'll pack the bus next Sunday. Uh, student camp is happening this week, so please pray for our middle school and our high school students and their leaders as they go. Well over 100 of them, right, are going uh, for the week uh, as they worship together and serve together and sing together and spend time together. Pray that God will do uh, some big things in the lives of our students this week. And then finally, as we've been in this series uh, now almost, I think about 10 weeks, we've been going through the gospel of Luke together. We've been calling it labels. And one of the things we've done uh, sort of as a church, we've read through the gospel of Luke together. We've prayed through the gospel of Luke together. And now in the last month of the series, we're shifting into really the share phase, right? Read, pray, and share. So we're encouraging and challenging everyone. Hey, take the opportunity this month, pray. We, we always are encouraging that you're 
praying for one person, who's your one, one person who doesn't know and love Jesus and pray for them that God would bring them to saving faith, that you'd have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And we want to just sort of hypercharge that over the last month here of saying, hey, pray that God would give you an opportunity to share with at least one person what it is that you've been learning, what you've been studying through in the gospel of Luke, to have a gospel conversation with someone who doesn't know and love Jesus. And so pray through that this month, we're looking for opportunities to share what it is the Lord has been uh, teaching us. Now, the big idea of the series as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke is this. We've said it pretty much every week that the Gospel calls us to a life above labels. Um, we live in a culture, much like in Jesus' time, that often labels people, and, and you get kind of defined by those labels if you're not careful. And what we see in the Gospel of Luke is just consistently Jesus hanging out with and associating with people who had been labeled by the culture and specifically by the religious authorities oftentimes, which ought to cause us to pause, right? The religious elites and authorities are the ones labeling sinner, prostitute, leper, tax collector, you're unclean, you're unworthy, you've done the wrong things, you don't deserve to be around Jesus, and consistently Jesus goes past those labels and calls those very people to follow him and be his disciples, and also consistently rebukes, sometimes uh, pretty harshly, sometimes more gently, rebukes the people doing the labeling, telling them, you've completely missed the heart of God in your attitude towards the sinner, the broken, and the outcast. That in your attitude, he's looking at the Pharisees and the religious leaders and telling them, you've missed the heart of God as it pertains to the sinner, the broken, and the outcast. And I can't think of anywhere better where this is on display than Luke chapter 15, which is where we are this morning. So if you have a Bible, go to Luke 15. We are, uh, if, if you're familiar at all with Luke 15, you may be thinking to yourself, oh, or if you open it and you see the parable of the prodigal son, um, that, yes, that is in Luke 15. Here's, here's my concern. It was really the same with the parable of the Good Samaritan, is that it's, it's perhaps along with the parable of the Good Samaritan, the, the most famous of the stories that Jesus told. And so what happens is when you're familiar with that, and maybe you're not, but, but many of us probably are, is you go, oh, I know this one, check. I know what this teaches, right? And really, when you look at Luke 15, it's, it's absolutely the parable of the prodigal son. But it's not just about the prodigal son. There are two brothers in this story, the younger son and the older brother. And it's not even really primarily about the boys as much as it's about the graciousness of the father. One commentator calls it the, the parable of the gracious father. And I agree with that. Because it's not even that it's that one parable. It's one of three stories that Jesus told, like a three-part parable where Jesus tells something to really teach the same thing. And so this is, where, this is where we have to pay attention to context. Context is so important. Like, why does Jesus tell the parable with the prodigal son and the older brother and the gracious father? Why does he tell the parable of the lost sheep right before that? And then the parable of the lost coin. What is it that prompts him to share these things to, to tell three stories with virtually the same point and purpose. Well, let's look at it. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners, there we are, right? The labels. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. One of the spectacular things about Jesus is how accessible he is to the common folk right? Sinners and tax collectors. These are people who were known publicly to be sinful. They, they broke the law. They didn't live a good moral life. Tax collectors, we've said this many times, but everybody hated them. 
They worked for the Roman government. The Roman government had brutally overtaken Israel. So Israelites, the Jewish people hated Rome. And these were Jewish people who said, I'm going to go work for Rome. And then they were very well known for taking more money than what they were supposed to, and they would pocket the extra. So they're distorting money from their own people. And it's these people who are gathering around, just hanging on Jesus's every word. And Jesus goes and eats with them, which is a sign of friendship. He's like, come on, come on, come all. And it drives the religious leaders nuts. It just baffles them. And here it says in verse two, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious elites muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man gathers people who are not the right kind of people, especially for a rabbi. You're making us look bad. Jesus, why do you do this? And by the way, just a bit of a side note here, but I think it's important. This, this thought struck me this week. When you read that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, that ought to trigger a little bit. That's, that's sta- that exact statement has happened other times, multiple other times in Luke, where you've got a Pharisee or a teacher of the law looking at something Jesus is doing, healing someone, and he's thinking to himself, why does Jesus do If this man were a prophet, he would know. You see that other times, the Pharisees literally says they were complaining, criticizing, muttering amongst themselves. And I just thought to myself, man, if our lives are marked, if your life or my life are marked by muttering, complaining, and criticizing, then we need to do a heart check, right? If, if every time, and I, I say this not as like to you, I say this to myself, I have seen in seasons of my life, right, where it's like, yeah, you just kind of have a criticism for everything, you know, you, the moment the person leaves the room, you're like, yeah, you got this thing going on, or you lean over, and you always have a comment, right, or, or everybody's celebrating, but you're like, well, and you've always got like the negative comment about the celebration that's going on, or you just can't be happy for anyone else, like you're complaining about, you complain about one thing, and then that thing gets resolved, and it's like, well, is the problem over? You're just on to the next thing to complain about, and if that's your life, If your life is marked by muttering, complaining, and criticizing, then you're in the same boat with the Pharisees, and that's just not the boat you want to be in. And so it's it's time to do a heart check and say, Father, what's at the heart? Lord, what's at the heart of, what's the heart of the muttering and the complaining and the constant criticism? Because it's like a check engine light. Something's wrong. And I need to look inside. I need to say, Father, help me to change. That's what marked their lives. Now, look at verse three. Then Jesus, right, in response to their muttering and complaining, they're looking at Jesus gathering sinners around him, showing grace, and they're just complaining. So in response to that, verse three, then Jesus told them this parable, right? And that's why I say context is so important. He's about to tell them three stories in a row. It's interesting he says parable, not parables. It's almost like it's a three-part parable, right? Again, with the same purpose. And the context is these sinners who are gathering around Jesus saying like, man, could Jesus really love me? Like, could I really have a new start? Could God, even in light of all that I've done, and then you got the Pharisees over here like, I don't know why Jesus hangs out with these people. And in response, Jesus is going to tell three stories in a row. And, and this is an important part too. The fact that he tells three, not just one, but three. I don't know of another place in scripture where Jesus tells three stories in a row. I may be wrong, but three stories in a row to teach the same point. That repetition tells us something. 
I was talking with uh, Rick Morris a few months ago. Rick taught here a couple of months ago, did a great job. And something he said to me that just stuck with me in that conversation, he said, Kale, we need to pay attention to what the Bible teaches, but we also need to pay attention to what the Bible emphasizes. I, I quoted him, by the way. Rick, if you're here, I just want to know, I want credit for the fact that I gave you credit for that statement. So um, he probably quoted it from someone else, right? But that's so good. Pay attention to what the Bible teaches, but also pay attention to what it emphasizes. When you, say, when you see Jesus say, truly, truly, I tell you, like, why is he repeating himself? Because he's saying, really, no, seriously, listen. So the fact that he's about to tell three stories to try to prove a singular point ought to cause us to pause and say, okay, what Jesus is about to say is incredibly important. And he's trying to answer the question, well, how does God feel about sinners? Verse 4. Suppose one of you, it's kind of looking at the Pharisees here, right? And the religious leaders. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? It's like the farmer, the, the shepherd is not like, ah, it's all right. I got 99 others. It's fine. It's like, no, <laughs> he values the sheep. I'm going after the lost one. He's lost his way. The sheep has left the path, left the path that's good for him or her made bad decisions, is now lost in the open country and all alone. I'm going after them. Verse 5, and when he finds it, joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. And Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now listen, parables are generally, generally speaking told to prove or to illustrate a singular point. There's a real temptation when reading parables to over-allegorize and over-analyze the heck out of them. And you're like, what is everything? What does shoulders mean, right? Does that mean like God has, he's very strong, right? Broad shoulders. And, and then he calls friends and neighbors. Who are God's friends and neighbors? That's not the point. Don't do that especially when Jesus tells you what the point of the parable is. We don't have to go back and say, I wonder what his point is. This is not one of those. This is one where Jesus gets done and is like, let me tell you the purpose of the parable. Heaven rejoices when sinners repent. Heaven rejoices when sinners turn from their sin and say, I know that I'm broken. I know that I'm lost. Lord, I need you. When sons and daughters who've left the path, who've left the fold, who've broken the rules, who knew better but did it anyway, when they turn and they come back to the Lord and when they're found and say, God, I'm sorry, God receives them with open arms and heaven breaks out into a celebration. 99 righteous persons, by the way, I think that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek by Jesus. I don't, I don't think Jesus is really like, and there are 99 other people who don't, they're totally righteous. I think he's kind of looking at the Pharisees saying like, 99 people who don't think they need repentance. Everybody needs to repent. Everybody has sin in their life and is broken. Bible's real clear, really clear about that. But I think Jesus is saying, man, when one person, you got 100 people who are like, yeah, I don't need God. And one person's like, no, I think I really need God. I think I'm broken and I need him. He says, the Father's reaction to that, heaven's reaction to that is rejoicing. The one who is lost has come home. When sinners repent, heaven rejoices. Jesus goes on. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. 
Now, that may sound odd to us because we think like, like dimes, right? It's not that valuable. The silver coin is the word for a day's wage, basically. So it's, it's a good bit of money. And so she loses one. He's like, does she just sit there and say, well, I got nine others, no big deal. No, it's valuable to her. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. Jesus, it was again, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Heaven rejoices when sinners repent. I'll just say it to you a little differently. Heaven rejoices when the lost are found. When the lost are found. The lost being found is what? It's a picture or an illustration of salvation. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Think about this for a moment. This, I was looking over my notes last night, and this hit me, honestly, in a new way. I don't know that I've ever understood the full depth of it. When one person, of the eight billion people on the planet, when one person begins to sing that song and mean it for the first time, heaven breaks out into a celebration. Angels begin to rejoice when one person says and means it, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the grave. When one person embraces the gospel, I'm a sinner in need of a savior and the God of the universe who needs nothing. I mean, think about what this says about the character and heart of God. The God of the universe who needs nothing, who doesn't need you or me to feel good about himself, but in love sent his own son. And Jesus took on flesh and became sin for us and went to the cross in our place. And God raised him from the grave for our justification to make us right with God, to give us new life. When one person says, I believe that and I'm turning from my sin and I'm trusting Jesus with my life, the response to that when that person comes home is not a divine lecture, but divine embrace and a celebration. Heaven breaks loose into a party because one of us says, I think I need Jesus. How marvelous, how wonderful is the Savior's love for me and for you? What does it say about the character and heart of God? That he and the angels, all of heaven would break out in celebration because one of us stops trying to fix ourselves and instead humbles ourselves under the mighty hand of God and says, Jesus, I need you. I need you. Have you ever thought about God that way? Have you ever taken time to ponder that reality? That when I turned and I said, Lord, I'm going to stop trying to fix myself. I need you to come do it. I need you to come and make me new. That he doesn't wag his finger at us and say, well, what took you so long? But rather, all of heaven rejoices. It ought to, honestly, I think it ought to revolutionize our view of God to think, what a gracious father. I think it ought to revolutionize our view of self so often we hear people, I hear people, right? And, and I've, I mean, I've been tempted to think it and I hear it in others, right? The, this, I'm not valued or I'm not wanted. It's like, what do you mean? The God of the universe, 
values you. The God of the universe wants you. He is waiting for you to come home, searching for you. When you turn, all of heaven celebrates and says, you're home. Welcome home. What could, who else do you need to tell you that you're valuable to make you feel good about yourself? The God of the universe loves you and celebrates when you come home. It gets better. Jesus goes on. Parable of the lost son, right? Or the gracious father. Verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, just so we understand, it may sound benign, but it's incredibly insulting. I mean, this is like, to, to, especially to a Jewish audience, it's like, this is unthinkable. A younger son who may not even get really an inheritance goes to his father, give me my, dad, you're dead to me. I just like my money now. Go ahead and give it to me now. It's selfish. It's disrespectful. And you're like, well, what are you going to use it for? Well, he tells us in verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living, literally reckless living, immoral living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, let's just understand, okay? You're like, uh, okay, so he hires himself out to a farmer and he's feeding pigs. No, no, no. He hires himself. Pigs are unclean animals for Jewish people. They're not allowed to own them. You don't eat them. They make you ceremonially unclean. So he's hired himself out to a Gentile and he's now feeding pigs, and he's longing, if I could just eat what the pigs eat. For a Jewish person, this is what you call rock bottom. It can't get any worse. That's the point. He was the son of a wealthy Jewish man, respected, great future, and now he's poor, destitute, and a servant of a non-Jewish person with unclean pigs looking at them going, if I could just eat what they ate, if I could just have what they're having. It is, you ever heard someone say, right, sometimes God has to get you to a place where you're rock bottom and flat on your back so you'll finally look up. It's a little bit cliche, but it's a whole lot of true. That's what's happened to him. He's a rock bottom. It can't get worse. He can't get lower. Looking, and finally, that humiliation leads him to humility, and the humility leads to clarity. I'll say that again. His humiliation leads to humility, and the humility grants him clarity about who God is and who he is and the desperate state of where he is. Sometimes bad things happen. And maybe it's been humiliating to you and you were tempted to wonder, why? why did or maybe you knew exactly why this happened, but the humiliation just led to, I'm just gonna get angry and bitter that I got humiliated. Don't. Let it lead you. Let the humiliation lead to humility. Because when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, you gain clarity about who God is and who you are and your need for him. And as we're gonna see, the grace that he lavishes on your life when you finally come home. Because here's, hap- here's what happens, right? Verse 17, when he came to his senses, 
That's a Jewish phrase. It's a Hebrew uh, expression that literally means he repents. He t- this is the moment for him where he looks and he's like, what am I doing? Repentance just doesn't mean a, a change of mind, but a change of heart, a spiritual heart level change where he's like, what in the world am I doing? I need to stop going this way and I need to come home, go back to what is true. Or maybe for the first time for some of us to come to Christ and to come to what is true. That's what's happening here. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. What am I doing? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, which is true. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, which is also true. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But here's where the gracious father, the grace of God is on full, spectacular, beautiful display. It never gets old, no matter how many times you read it. But while he was still a long way off, the humbled, humiliated young man coming home with his prepared speech While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. It never gets old. The father's waiting, looking, longing, sees him from a long way off. And when he sees his son, again, not met with a divine lecture, but a divine embrace. And the son said to him, he begins his prepared speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just a note here, by the way, sometimes I hear, even within Christian circles, because of this whole, like, I feel unworthy and I feel unvalued. Yes, there is is such a good correction. The gospel corrects us. It doesn't let us get prideful. And what do I have to be prideful for? It's all grace. But it also doesn't let us say, well, I, I'm a horrible, you know, no, I'm not valuable. No, you are valued. The, the God of the universe loves you. But sometimes I hear this language and this approach to fixing this that I just don't think is helpful. And that is, it's like, you are worthy. You're just worthy. And it's almost like if I just repeat the mantra to myself, I'm worthy. I deserve a good life. I deserve happiness. That's right. That's not how to fix that. I think the approach of the younger son is right in the sense of, Lord, I know I don't deserve anything. I know I'm not worthy of your grace. That's why it's called grace. It's undeserved. When we come to the Father, we say, I know that I'm broken and sinful. I know I don't deserve this. The Father meets us, embraces us, and says, I love you, and I'm glad you're home. Look at what happens in verse 22. The son, Lord, I've sinned against you. Father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father doesn't even acknowledge it. He doesn't let him sit in it for a while. Let me just sit you, let me sit you, you know, in your humiliation for a bit. No, it says the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Everything that happens here, the robe, the ring, the sandals, they're all signs of acceptance and love in their culture. Signs that the father doesn't view him as a servant, but as a son. My love for you is undiminished. In spite of everything that I've done, yes. I'm just glad you're home. Let's celebrate. Why? Verse 24, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Church, heaven rejoices when sinners repent. 
Heaven rejoices when the lost are found. And I'll say it to you a third way, just slightly different. The father rejoices when the prodigal comes home. The father rejoices when the prodigal comes home. When a sinful man or woman humbles themselves under the mighty hand of God and repents, when he or she puts his or her faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus, once again, not met with a divine lecture about how bad you've been, but with a divine hug and a celebration, a joyful heavenly father who's welcoming you home, waiting for you to come home, running to you, embracing you and saying, I know you made a mess of everything and I still love you. And my grace is sufficient for you. And your sin is nailed to the cross and left there. That's why Jesus came to die, to pay for your very worst. When you were selfish, when I was selfish, when we were disrespectful and disobedient and immoral and everything else, the goal, the, the solution to that is not to minimize it and say, well, I don't really have anything to be sorry for. Sin's an antiquated idea. No, it's to recognize it and say, it's all been paid for by Jesus at the cross. And Jesus welcomes me home. And the Father waits. Once again, how marvelous, how wonderful is the Savior's love for you and me. And then the story's still not over, right? In case we've all thought, okay, that's enough, right? Here's the end of the story. Because there's another brother and another way in which Jesus wants to drive home the main point. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, the servant replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Isn't that great? He's home. And the older brother's response to this, right? This is where the parable actually comes to climax because this is primarily aimed at the Pharisee. It's a response to the Pharisees. The older brother is a representative of the religious, self-righteous, prideful person. And Jesus is telling this parable in a lot of ways as a correction or rebuke to that person. Your view of God is completely messed up. The older brother says there, does this, verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Just note that. His father went out and pleaded with him. God doesn't want self-righteous people to stay in their self-righteousness. He wants them desperately to come off, come off the front porch of your pride and self-righteousness and come to the party. Come and be happy. Come join. All you have to do is lay down your pride. You can come in. But he answered his father, verse 29, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Just note what that statement and that language says about the older brother's view of the father. I say this because I think the text teaches it. I've also experienced it in my own life, viewing God through this lens of not good father, but harsh taskmaster. And I, my job, I, you know, I'm doing all the right things. And my job is to just stay in line and obey your orders, right? I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders. 
It's such a messed up view of God. If God is this compassionate and this loving and this gracious, which, which is what Jesus is showing us, how messed up our view of him when we look at him and we don't think gracious father who wants to, even when he disciplines me, disciplines me for good, but rather harsh taskmaster, I slave away for him. My job is to obey his orders, try not to get in line. And if I do a good job, then God owes me something. One pastor, one of our pastors is saying it this way this week, and I thought it was so good. There are two sons who are lost in this story. One is lost in the far country. One is lost at home. One is lost in reckless living. One is lost inside the walls of religion. I've done everything right. Why in the world would you throw a party for him? Look at it, verse 29, end of verse 20. I've, I've slaved away for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. That always caught me, and last night it hit me for the first time. Like, why didn't he ever give him a, you know, like, you, you've never thrown a party for me. I really think this is the answer. I don't think he ever asked. What does Matthew 7 tell us? That we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children? It says, how much does the Father love to give good gifts to what? those who ask. I think the older brother's view is so distorted of his father. Since he doesn't, you ask things of good fathers. You don't ask things of really mean bosses. You're just afraid, like, I just got to stay in line so I don't get fired. I think the older brother's view of the father is so messed up. The Pharisee, the religious, the self-righteous. Like, I don't think he's ever asked for it. Can I have a party? I think the father would say, I'd love, I'd love for you to come into the party. But he's too busy saying, I'm slaving away for you and trying to obey your orders. So his whole view, blinded by his self-righteousness and pride. Never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours... Can't even call him his brother. When the son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. I mean, this is what Jesus is getting at. So everything about this view, everything about this attitude that looks at sinners and broken people and outcasts who are like, hey, can I come into the party? And you're like, you, you messed up your life. It's your fault. He's so blinded by his self-righteousness and his pride, he can't see a right, he's, he's, can't see a right view of the Father, can't see a right view of self, his own need for grace. He can't see a right view of his brother. That's why he can't celebrate. That's why he can't say, oh, my brother's home. Praise God, he's home. All he can think is, that's not fair. Church, don't miss it. This is why some of us are so miserable. It's because this is the way we view God and our own life. I worked hard. And when any, whenever something good happens to someone else, instead of being able to say, man, good for them, you're going, that's not fair. I worked harder than that person. I'm a good person. Why doesn't that happen to me? I think Jesus would look at us and warn us and plead with us through this story. Do you, you don't understand grace. You don't understand your own brokenness. You can be lost in the walls of religion just like you can be lost out in reckless living. And there's a gracious father 
who wants you to come in and be happy. All you have to do is lay down your pride and your self-righteousness and receive the grace of the Father and you can come join the party and be happy in him. My son, the Father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's a little bit of a cliffhanger ending, right? Because the story ends and you don't know, well, does the older brother come in or not? It's a, it's a warning, right? I mean, to those of us who are struggling this morning with self-righteousness and, ride, self-righteousness and pride, there's a warning here and there's an encouragement, right? The warning being, well, the, the only one who's left out of the party at the end of this story is the older brother. But the encouragement is there's a gracious heavenly father saying, come in, pleading with you. And it brings us all the way back to the beginning, right? Jesus has circled us all the way back to the Pharisees and the religious leaders looking at the sinners gathering around him. I mean, think about the context again. Jesus just told these three stories in front of prodigals and older brothers. He just told these stories about sinners, tax collectors. There's a heavenly father waiting for you to turn from your sin and come home. And Pharisees and religious Folk, there's a heavenly father pleading with you to humble yourself and to have your heart broken and softened. And he wants you to come in. There's a good and gracious father. Run to him. So let me ask, let's close here. Let me just ask, where are you this morning? What do you need to hear from Jesus this morning? Some of us, the reality is, right, with this many people, some of us are the prodigals. And maybe you've not hit rock bottom yet. Maybe you have. Maybe that's still to come. Honestly, what I'd love is if you didn't have to hit rock bottom before you would come to your senses and say, I need to go home. Some of us are prodigals and you're out in the far country right now and you know what you're doing is wrong and you know the sin is there. Come home today. There is a gracious heavenly father waiting for you. You won't be met with a divine lecture, but with a divine embrace. When you turn from your sin and you trust your life to Jesus, come home today, this morning. Some of us are praying for the prodigals. And I know it is hard to watch someone wander. Can I just encourage you, if that's the position you're in this morning, don't stop praying for them. Don't give up on them. The Father does not give up on them, neither should you. Keep praying. And then for some of us, we are the older brothers. That's where some of us are this morning, in self-righteousness and pride. You read that story and you're like, I kind of get why the older brother's mad. (laughs) And if that's where you are this morning, again, it's a warning and a rebuke. That's That's not an attitude that understands grace. And it's also an encouragement that the heavenly father, the gracious heavenly father is pleading with you, lay down your pride, come off the front porch of self-righteousness and pride, come and be happy in Christ and join the party. Let's pray together.
Father, will you take your word this morning and will you bind it up in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit? Don't let us leave here unchanged. God, I pray that you would convict the prodigals this morning and that right now, even now, they would turn from their sin, come to their senses and come home. And they would experience your love through the death, resurrection, and resurrection of Jesus. God, I pray for those of us who are praying for prodigals, who hurt as we watch loved ones wander far from you and far from home. God, will you give us endurance and strength and patience? Help us to keep praying and not give up. And Father, I pray for those of us who wrestle as the older brother with self-righteousness and pride. That's where our heart is this morning. Forgive us. Let us humble ourselves. And remember, or perhaps for the first time, understand the true meaning of grace. And all of us, Father, let us come home to you and run to the Father because you're good. We thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.